Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. The integrity and quality of public education in the United States has been under assault for decades, as Ellen Schrecker documents in her new book, The Lost Promise American Universities in the 1960s. The American dream of high-quality, affordable, mass higher education is no longer within reach of many Americans. Tuitions, once low if not free, have soared, and with them tremendous student debt. Although the Biden administration has made an effort to reduce some of this debt, Millions of students, graduates, and dropouts still owe a staggering $1.6 trillion. State legislators and the federal government have dramatically slashed funding to public universities, forcing them to seek support from corporations and reduce most faculty the status of poorly paid adjuncts, often lacking benefits as well as job security. Nearly 75% of the instruction at colleges and universities is in the hands of adjuncts who have no hope of being granted tenure. Public institutions, which serve 80% of the nation's students, are chronically short of funding and basic resources. Higher education has evolved, even at major research universities, into primarily vocational training, no longer a vehicle for learning, instead one about economic mobility. The assault sees elite schools where tuitions can run as high as $80,000 a year, cater to the wealthy and the privileged, locking out the poor and the working class. Joining me to discuss the crisis in higher education is Ellen Schrecker, retired professor of history at Yeshiva University and the author of numerous books, including her latest, The Lost Promise American Universities in the 1960s. In the book, you argue that the upheavals on campus in the 1960s uh, laid the groundwork for the assault against uh, higher education. Uh, But before we go into that, uh, you contrast what was happening in the United States and at the universities with the early periods of the Cold War. Uh, You note that there was no blacklist Uh, The expansive job market not only enabled the protagonists uh, in your book to find new academic positions once they were removed, uh, it it, it removed the fear that had previously constrained colleagues from making a fuss. Uh, More professors were willing uh, to stand up for sanctioned colleagues, uh, refusing to countenance violations of academic freedom and professional autonomy. Uh, you yeah, at one point in the book call this the golden age. We're talking about the 1960s of higher education. Uh, but just to begin, what did we come out of? Because people had to sign loyalty oaths uh, in the 1950s. I remember Sheldon Woolen telling me that he signed one. He said he'd signed one in the military. It doesn't make any difference if he signed one to teach at Berkeley. Uh, but But just set the stage before we go into the 60s. Sure. What the 60s followed was McCarthyism, which I have written about as well. And um, during the late 40s and 1950s, there was a massive political chill on American campuses. We all know 
about Joe McCarthy and have you no decency, sir. And we know as well about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, who uh, was collecting um, political uh, information of a, you know, sort of conservative nature uh, uh, for more than uh, 100,000 people, at least. Uh, this was a period of repression. There were um, congressional investigations. There were blacklists. In my own work, I interviewed uh, more than 100 faculty members who lost their jobs for political reasons during the uh, late 50, during the late 40s and 1950s. The irony here is that at the same time that uh, Hoover and McCarthy were running roughshod over the First Amendment, colleges and universities were experiencing their quote-unquote golden age. They were experiencing a moment when the uh, American people were incredibly supportive of higher education. Uh, the GI Bill after World War II brought uh, a whole new cohort of uh, students onto American campuses, which were no longer uh, mainly for the elite, but were uh, educating middle class, lower middle class, not too many working class or lower class Americans, um, and were was expanding enormously as were faculty members who really benefited from uh, this uh, so-called golden age. Uh, there was money being thrown at people, myself included, um, to go to graduate school, uh, to get a PhD, and then, as people today uh, would be salivating about, people could get jobs. Well, well-paying well tenure jobs. <laughs> well-paying tenured and tenure-track jobs. And as you noted earlier, uh, if they were fired for political reasons, they would um, find another one. There were so many jobs. Which, which, which wasn't, wasn't true in the 50s. And I remember from your earlier book on McCarthyism, which I didn't know until I read your book, the FBI would go even into high schools with lists of professors or teachers that they wanted removed without any evidence at all. Uh, and these people would be instantly dismissed. And then they were blacklisted. They couldn't get hired anywhere else. Right. Um, but those, by the mid-50s, by, well, Sputnik in 1957, when the uh, Soviet Union uh, sent the first uh, satellite up into orbit, uh, at that point, higher education, especially, of course, in the sciences, was considered a matter of national security. So they were really throwing federal money. Um, states were sort of looking to um, build up their universities. They wanted to have the prestige as well as the winning football teams. And um, it was really a genuine golden age for people who were interested in ideas. It was very exciting to be a graduate student in the late 1950s and early 60s. I want to just as an aside talk about the historically black institutions because you mentioned Philander Smith College and Little Rock. 
uh, and that uh, because of anti-Semitism, Jewish refugees often ended up at these institutions. This is not in your book. I just happen to know. Also, a lot of blacklisted uh, professors ended up at colleges like Philander Smith in Little Rock. And Philander Smith College is where the great theologian, the radical theologian James Cone was uh, educated. Uh, And I just thought that was fascinating that because of anti-Semitism and because of McCarthyism and because historically black institutions were considered uh, or marginalized and second tier, you often had these tremendous uh, faculties uh, on them at that particular time. Uh, So let's start with the uh, beginning of the unrest on the universities who spend a lot of time in the book talking about the free speech movement at Berkeley uh, and the importance of teach-ins, which which I didn't quite get until I read the book, how important those were. So perhaps you can speak about that. Okay, but I want to speak since you're actually looked, discussed uh, those black colleges and uh, universities, HBCUs, is of course where the 60s began to a large extent because it's the students at schools like Fisk University in Nashville or Moorhead and Spelman in Atlanta that really began the uh, sort of a really jump-started the civil rights movement in a way that uh, brought political activism first to their own campuses and then to the rest of the country. And the um, one of the things I discovered was that most of the leaders of the what we might call the academic left uh, had in one way or another been involved with the civil rights movement before the Vietnam War, before uh, the Berkeley free speech movement. They had been working with the main civil rights organizations uh, fighting for racial equality. So it's incredibly important to know, make that connection between uh, the movements of the later 60s on American campuses and then, of course, the repression against them, uh, to make that uh, connection between the sort of political awakening after McCarthyism and uh, the civil rights movement. And I can remember I interviewed a... uh, sociologist, a very active sociologist named Dick Flax, um, who told me that when he was in graduate school at the University of Michigan, that when he went out on the street and saw a group of students and faculty members picketing in front of the uh, Woolworths store, which was a national chain uh, that uh, had been boycotted by the civil rights movement, he said, oh, Finally, there's some political action happening on campuses, and that was incredibly important. Well, two of the important figures in your book, Staunton Lind, who we just lost, unfortunately, and Howard Zinn, I think they were both at Spelman, both fired, uh, because they were doing precisely that with their students. Exactly. Howard Zinn would take his students. They desegregated the Atlanta Public Library. They just went in and uh, student after student would ask for a copy of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. And then finally, 
uh, the Atlanta uh, uh, library officials decided they were more trouble than they were worth, and so they desegregated the place. So uh, sin was incredibly important in the civil rights movement and then later on in the anti-war movement and um, is a main uh, sort of history maker as well as a historian. Stoughton Lynn, the same thing. Although Lynn was not fired by Spellman. He was uh, fired from pushed out of Yale eventually. Yeah. What happened was um, he quit. He quit as a protest against the firing of Howard Right. And was immediately hired by Yale. So this is somebody who is not exactly a slouch as a historian. He's quite uh, reputable, wrote a very important book on the American Revolution. Um, and uh, what we're seeing there is a connection uh, between the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And uh, lots of people who were active during the 60s, did get their start picketing Will Woolworths or even more important, like Mario Savio, who was the leader of the Berkeley free speech movement, went south uh, in not the summer of 1964 in a project called Mississippi Summer to help um, uh, register African-American uh men and women as voters in Mississippi. They had really been uh, uh, de... uh, 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 They lost the right to vote. Uh, And what uh, this Mississippi Summer Project was trying to do was gain uh, attention because uh, there was so much political repression in Mississippi and so much violence. I mean, people were being killed for trying to register to vote. And so the leaders of the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, uh, devised this program of sending white, well-connected college students to do voter registration in Mississippi to get some attention. And it worked. It certainly worked. Uh, and many of those, uh, what shall we say, veterans from the civil, from the Mississippi summer, from the civil rights movement in the North as well, um, became active, very active in the following, uh, decade. That's also true for William Sloan Coffin, who you write about in the book. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about the free speech movement at Berkeley. It's, it occupies a pretty important chunk of your book. Right. Well, you know, you, don't ordinarily have such a dramatic change in uh, sort of the political climate as you do uh, with the Berkeley Free Speech Movement. It launched the student movement. It was the first time in American history where uh, students engaged in nonviolent direct action uh, directed against their own universities on political issues. This politicized American students who until then, maybe they were sort of interested in left things. Maybe they were interested in Cuba. Maybe they were interested in anti-nuclear weapons, uh, in the anti-nuclear peace movement. Uh, But Berkeley did it. Berkeley said, you know, your university is behaving in an undemocratic manner. 
Uh, this was what the free speech movement was about. The university would not let um, student groups on campus recruit students for off-campus political activities. It was incredibly repressive, uh, much more so than you would expect because Berkeley was a major, major school. And most people uh, uh, sort of thought of it as a rather liberal place uh, by the late 50s, although during the uh, height of the McCarthy period, it had a loyalty oath uh, for faculty members that led to uh, firings and a blacklist. But uh, by the mid-60s, Berkeley was a kind of political scene. People were going there. And they were radicals. And then people who got there who weren't radicals got radicalized. So Berkeley was kind of a hotbed. And then, boom, you know, a uh, group of students, uh, like a thousand students, sat down around a police car that was taking a civil rights activist to the local jail because he had violated the university's regulations on uh, recruiting students for off-campus political activities. And that did it. Uh, the university cracked down on uh, student leaders. Um, student leaders fought bat back, organized uh, the Berkeley free speech movement, and um, forced the university to... Um, revise its procedures for uh, on and off campus political activities. In other words, the free speech movement uh, was fighting about free speech. It wasn't a very radical uh, demand. You know, they weren't demanding uh, curricular changes or the hiring of certain radicals or anything like that. All they wanted was to have the same political rights as any other American. You, was, you, you write in the book, as a result, the authorities paid insufficient attention to the content of student demands while seriously overreacting to their style. This is, of course, a political figure like Ronald Reagan uh, rides this into the, the, the governorship and eventually, of course, the presidency. So at the, you're right that it wasn't particularly radical in any way uh, but it got a lot of coverage. I think there's the picture of Mario Savio standing on top of that police car, right? Sure. Uh, and and that uh, really triggered the kind of rightist forces that had been in sympathy or in many cases actually participated in uh, McCarthyism. Exactly. There was, a, beginning with Berkeley, a real backlash against the students. I mean, what they were doing was um, not necessarily legal. They were trespassing. They had taken over the administration building at Berkeley. This had never happened before, not for any political cause. And so, um, you know, the administration at Berkeley was blindsided. They hadn't expected this. They didn't know what to do. Nobody was expecting, I mean, one of the themes of the book is simply that this was unprecedented. This was the first time in history 
that um, university administrators had to deal with left-wing radicals who were disrupting classes, who were taking over buildings, who were demonstrating, um, who were doing things that the uh, administration wanted stopped. This was really bad publicity. I just want to talk about the role of the FBI. Uh, they start disseminating all sorts of allegations uh, to uh, to figures within the administration. For instance, the vice chancellor, Alex Sheriffs, who became Reagan's top advisor in education, that uh, uh, this was a communist radical block. None of this was true, of course. Uh, that uh, they, the elements of the free speech movement uh, were practitioners. Uh, these are FBI words, tactics of Fidel Castro, Mao Zedong. Uh, and, and this charge, this demonization of the students was picked up by the media. Uh, and and uh, you write that the, there was a, not much sympathy within the public for the students uh, they did a, a very effective job at marginalizing them on a national level. Yeah. Uh, this was done from the start with the Berkeley uh, free speech movement. Um, Clark Kerr, the president of Berkeley, who was one of the first victims, in fact, of the backlash against the student movement. Uh, Clark Kerr was being fed stuff um, through this guy, Sheriff, uh, who was a vice chancellor at Berkeley, uh, and Sheriff was being fed stuff by the FBI about the so-called communist connections of these crazy students. And Clark Kerr, to his discredit, uh, parroted that stuff and talked about it. The main evidence they had for these uh, communist connections was the fact that one of the leaders of the free speech movement was a uh, undergraduate student named Bettina Apthecker, whose father was a well-known or publicly known communist historian. And so, therefore, they claimed that, look at that, the communists are in charge. Well, Bettina Apthecker was not only the only woman or one of the few women in the leadership of the free speech movement, but she was one of the most moderate figures in that group. She was uh, somebody who didn't shout slogans or anything. She said, look, you know, we're just asking to be given our rights and let's work this out. And ultimately... Um, the cavalry that came to the rescue of the students was the faculty. This is very important. There was a uh, important vote by the Berkeley Faculty Senate in the in about two months into the free speech movement when the campus was just doing nothing but holding meetings. And um, the faculty held a meeting and voted uh in favor of revising its uh, the school's regulations uh, for political activity on campus, and uh, managed to convince the um, Board of Regents, which was the final authority, to make those changes, and the free speech movement ended with a victory, definitely a victory. 
with a new, um, more uh, democratic uh, form of uh, campus uh, regulations. And this leads into the anti-war movement. Uh, and of course, students are directly affected by the war. Uh, much of the uh, anger on campuses is about collaboration between universities and the war industry, including the uh, manufacturing of uh, uh, chemical agents such as Agent Orange, etc. Um, and you said the escalation of the war brought about the creation of a new form of protest, the teach-in. Uh, which which you place a lot of importance. Uh, you, you consider a very important moment. One of the things I found moving, by the way, is the way the students would react to the teach-ins, that they, it, it suddenly gave a vitality to their university experience, almost euphoric in the sense that students, professors came out of the classrooms. These things were often done outside or outside the confines of the university. They would last, I think at one point you said like 30 hours or something. But talk, at, talk Berkeley. at Berkeley, talk about that. Sure. Well, well, one of the things that I discovered in my research was that uh, at the time the Vietnam War really escalated, which is in the early spring of uh, 1965, which is what? Three months after the end of the free speech movement. Okay. So, you know, boom, there's the free speech movement. And then all of a sudden there's Vietnam. And um, what I discovered was that nobody knew anything about Vietnam. It had been a French colony. It had fought a uh, over a debt for more than a decade uh, against the French after World War II to win its independence. Um, it was led by communists, so that the American uh, foreign policy establishment, especially in the aftermath of McCarthyism, which had a, a large component of um, attacks on the Truman administration for, quote-unquote, losing China. We have to understand there was a, a major revolution in China. Uh, communists came to power. So there was this sense that uh, in the Johnson administration, we can't lose another country. We can't lose another country because the Truman administration was under such heavy attack. We don't want to go through that again. Little did they know, of course that they were doing something that would, in fact, lead to uh, massive, massive uh, anti-war movement. But anyhow, in the beginning, uh, nobody knew anything about Vietnam. Um, my late husband wrote the first sort of best-selling book. It was a kind of a collection of documents and articles about Vietnam that was published in the summer of 1965. It became a bestseller because nobody knew anything. I, I just, Ellen, I want to stop you there because I only have five minutes left. And so you saw the rise of the anti-war movement. Um, in, the same tactics were used to demonize uh, the campus radicals, if we want to call them that, that were used in the free speech movement. Uh, and this led to tremendous blowback against the universities. Just briefly tell us what the blowback was and where we are now. Okay. 
Well, we're skipping. I know. Many things, I, well, it's a long book. Let's... People are going to have to read it. So. <laughs> oh, good idea. And eventually it's going to come out in paper. Okay. <laughs> so anyhow, what happened was, you know, uh, the Berkeley free speech movement made the career of Ronald Reagan. A lot of other rather opportunistic politicians followed suit. Uh, and within a few years, by the early 1970s, there were laws on the books against um, student radicals. Uh, they criminalized anybody who rioted on campus in certain states. They took away their uh, state funding. But especially, they took away funding for the institutions across the board. They uh, they were still expanding in size, but the uh, percentage of their budgets that was being supplied by the states and federal government as well uh, declined. And so where did these uh, schools uh, get the money to continue? Uh, student tuitions. That's where this uh, massive debt, $1.6 trillion, was accrued. Uh, student uh, universities raised tuitions and they cut uh, costs. And the cutting of costs led to a hollowing out of the faculty. Uh, um, they did not replace full-time tenure track and tenured professors when they retired. They simply hired adjuncts, part-time workers, or people on one or two-year contracts none of them with any academic freedom, none of them with the ability to uh, sort of uh, criticize what's going I, on. Ellen, I just want to stop there because I only have a minute. They also purged the universities, which you write about. They would drive people out like Staunton Lind was driven out of Yale, and they wouldn't tell them that they were being purged for their political positions. But like McCarthy, although it wasn't overt, uh, large numbers of faculty who had been uh, politically engaged were pushed out. Well, they weren't pushed out. That's what differentiated the 60s and early 70s from McCarthyism because universities were still expanding. And so people could get jobs. Now, they wouldn't get uh, very good jobs often, but they were able to get jobs at uh, these expanding colleges, the second-tier, third-tier public universities. Uh, and in fact, uh, Stoughton Lind was an exception because he really was blacklisted. But I've seen uh, cases of somebody who was fired once, twice, three times and still got a job. So it's, it was a different uh, era. But then, of course, as people retired, they were not being replaced. And so you now have a, a gig professoriate, as we call it. And these are people who are paid so badly and have so little economic security that they really can't give their students the kind of education that those students deserve. They have to teach at one, two, three different schools. They don't have offices. Uh, they don't have um, 
the kind of library privileges. They can't do research. And what we're seeing is a decline in the quality of higher education, as well as a rise in the cost. Uh, and then uh, because these things are happening, uh, higher institutions of higher education are becoming increasingly unpopular to the extent that you now have opportunistic politicians like our dear governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, cracking down on them politically for things that they're not even doing. And we're seeing a real moment, an existential moment, I would call it, within the world of higher education that's terrifying. And that is also, um, there's an undercurrent here of racism. And I want to stress, and I'm not sure I even stressed it enough in the book, is this connection between this country's racial problems and the problems of higher education. And uh, that's a theme we have to pay a lot of attention to today. Great. We're going to stop there. That was Ellen Schrecker on her new book, The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 